As times and technology change, publishers and editors are trying to develop better ways to distribute information and reach a wider audience. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN President Dr. Eleanor Lederer speaks with Dr. Rajnish Marotra, the Editor-in-Chief of CJSON, about how we can better disseminate the newest research among a broader, more technologically savvy audience. I'll just start with the same question that I asked you on the ASN communities because I found it really almost startling when I guess somebody asked you what was your biggest surprise when you took over as being editor of CJSON and you made some response to the effect that you realized that you actually had no idea of the huge breadth of research that was going on. And I wondered if a person like you, who is so energetic and keeps up with the clinical literature as well as you do, if you realize that there was huge bodies of literature out there that you weren't keeping up with, what's going to happen to the rest of us <laughs> who don't have your energy? That's, you know, I think a good place to start, you know, how your eyes have been opened to the breadth of research. Uh, it's a very important question, and I take a broader view than just the scientific publishing. From the time, even in the last 20 years, if you reflect upon how we consume news, and information otherwise has changed dramatically. We've moved away from having uh, physical newspapers and we have 24-hour cable news, we have Facebook, and we have all other forms of social media in how we consume information. Um, I would argue that scientific publishing has not kept pace with how we live our lives now compared to how it used to be 20 years ago. And so for us to be able to engage individuals in the society we live in, Scientific publishing needs to innovate in how to communicate information to people that have too many demands on their time. Um, things that I find helpful that I've tried to do but inconsistently is to get electronic table of contents, for example, for journals that publish things of interest to me. Even then, oftentimes, you're so inundated with email that I, I would be wrong if I said I look at the e-talks carefully every time. We've started a few more initiatives in the last few months to grab the attention of individuals that are so busy otherwise. Uh, we have started podcasts. Our hope is to have podcasts and at least two articles published in CJSON every month. We have recently introduced visual abstracts, that is, a single PowerPoint slide that summarizes the key message from the paper that we hope then for it to be made available through the website and through social media. And those are how we communicate information through social media is also very critical. And I think what is important that I hope to do in the next year or two is to test those assumptions. There's a way in which we consume information, and then there are the people that are effectively growing up, so to say, in the medical world, people that are fellows and young faculty, to see what are things that potentially could be effective that we are not presently thinking about in communicating all that there is to communicate. That would be my take. Uh, I, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts in terms of your trainees and other individuals in what they think works for them and what works for you to keep up with what you keep up with. So, so have you have you heard the uh, set of initials TLDR? Um, no. Okay, so this is thrown around by young people. Too long, didn't read. I just found out about this a couple of weeks ago myself. So. I think this is a direct outgrowth of the phenomenon that you've described. People are now accustomed to getting their news in teeny chunks in a way that's relatively easily digestible. Uh, I mean, if you look at the news on TV even, 
it's all little bitty two-minute blurbets on what's going on. And you have to wonder how many people are actually reading the two- or three-page New York Times articles that can actually be quite excellent and groundbreaking. I think it's a challenge for people looking at medical literature because the way that it's designed now, you know, every article, I mean, you can read the abstract, you know, at the top and get your little sound bite. But if you're really interested in it, you have to dig in and look at things like, how do they do this? You know, what was the population that they were looking at? What kinds of statistics did they use to analyze it? I think that one of the sequelae of the new way of disseminating news and information, which has gotten a lot of press lately, is the fact that we have become in many ways sort of holed up and siloed in the types of information that we even want to get or are willing to listen to or look at. For the practicing nephrologist, that's got to be a challenge. You know, you're trying to keep up with everything. Maybe maybe for you and maybe for me, in academics, we've chosen our field. And so, sure, you know everything there is to know about peritoneal dialysis. I'll admit I hardly know anything about peritoneal dialysis. You know, on the other hand, I probably know as much as anybody on phosphate metabolism. And that may not be an area that you're that interested in and that you look at that much. But the general nephrologist can't do that. They've got to see all of the problems and try to keep up. That is why a journal like C. Jason is as important as it is, because it does appeal to the general nephrologist that's out there practicing, has a wide variety of articles. I think your challenge is just what you said. How can you present those articles in the most effective way? How can you highlight what's most important, what may be groundbreaking for a general nephrologist out there who is reading the journal to try to keep up? I completely sympathize with the acronym TLDR, which you introduced me to, that I conceptually embrace. And in thinking about this and how I would share my vision for the journal, I partition it into two parts. One is communicating original research, and then the other is value-added features that put our knowledge in context. So the original research, I think, is very important for all information to be presented in a manner such that if another investigator wanted to replicate those findings, they had all the information they needed in that paper. Um, it's still being readable, but it needs to have sufficient information for somebody who would like to replicate the work. The value-added features is where I think one has to be very careful because I do not believe that there are many people that read papers that have 3,000, 5,000, 7,000 words. Uh, I, I just don't think that there are unless it's a fellow that wants to use that review article to make a presentation for Grand Run presentation. So we have changed direction in that regard such that phrase I like to use is within quotes bite-sized pieces that allow people to readily consume the information that there is but it'd be no more than 1,500 words. Uh, 1,500 words may be too many, but it is at least moving in the direction of it being bite-sized, for it being able to be consumed for people on the move. A lot of the information is consumed, I think, even scientific publishing on handheld devices and not even desktops. So, And, and nobody's going to scroll down an article and consume that information unless they can readily consume it. So I think we're on the same page in that regard, I would say. But that's the challenge for journal editors for us to innovate in how we communicate this message. So if you look at if you look at a journal like Science, 
I mean, to me, it's amazing because their articles are three pages long. That's it. I try to figure out, you know, how is it that they scrunched that down into three pages, and I don't know, what is, what is the average page length for an article in CJSON? Do you know? Uh, I'm going to say a research article probably is five to seven pages usually. Maybe I'm wrong, but that I would think so. Yeah. And I, I suspect that in the science articles that they don't publish a whole lot of the nitty-gritty of the methods. And perhaps, you know, this is one of the things that, not that that's not looked at by the people that are reviewing it, but perhaps it's just not published. And so when you look at a science article, it's pretty easy to scan two or three pages as opposed to maybe five to seven pages or whatever of an article in another type of journal. And that is a consideration. I know that in JSON, of course, I think it's JSON, that they've now just relegated the methods part to the end of the article, and it's a smaller font, so that you can read, I guess, what most people would consider, gee whiz, this is the heart of the matter right here. If you're not that either interested or savvy in research articles and in methodology, and, and speaking of methodology, I, I think that one of the biggest challenges, even for me, not being a clinical researcher, is that very difficult for me to evaluate the type of statistics that are used nowadays. This is, and, and so I wonder for the general nephrologist, I think that they basically simply have to take it for granted that you guys have done a superb job of vetting the statistics used and then verify their validity than when the paper is written. But there's some types of analyses that when I read it, I realize I've never even heard of this before. You bring up an extremely important point with regards to the various research methods that are used in clinical research. Um, there are organizations and groups that have put together checklists for what should be included, say, when you're publishing the results of a clinical trial. What should be included when you're publishing the results of a meta-analysis? Um, so what we have done at CJSON, and this is something that CJSON has endorsed all along, uh, and we have taken that a step forward, we have adapted those checklists, and every time that there is an article that we think is going to move forward for a revision, we have the associate editors complete the checklist for the article type that it involves. So if it's a clinical trial, we would use the consort checklist. If it is an observational cohort study, uh, we would use a strobe checklist. For meta-analysis, we would use a PRISMA checklist. So those are the three that we have started with, and we include this now with our first assessment of the article that we send back to the author. We said, we've run this checklist. These are things that you have not included. Please make sure you include this information so that we standardize our way of reporting clinical research. The importance for the associate editors to be using the checklist is because each one of us, authors, editors, readers, have too many demands on our times. Uh, and there are times that we are short on time, as a result of which there are things that we know are important, but we do not address it. Using the checklist takes away trying to recollect this from memory. Uh, and so I think you are absolutely right. The burden is upon the editors to determine the way I phrase it to my team is to test the internal and external validity of the findings. Only then should it move forward for publication if the results are not internally valid or externally valid, then it has no place in the journal. Well, uh, you know, so, uh, of course, articles from journals such as CJSON are frequently used for journal clubs in training programs. And at least one of the questions that we always ask our fellows to address when they're reviewing an article is, 
is this going to change your practice and how is this going to change your practice? And I find it rather interesting that that specific question is never really addressed in an article. I mean, I never I never see at the end of an article in a conclusion, you know, the conclusion is whatever the conclusion they come to, vitamin D may be important for health, pretty vague conclusion, but I don't ever I don't ever see an author go out on a limb and say everybody in your dialysis unit should be on ergocalciferol, just to throw out an example. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is that, that they are reluctant to step out like that and say, this is how we think this should change your practice? So that, that's actually the first thing that we look at when we assess the paper. Uh, and for lack of another word, I would say the word significance. And there are two ways an article could be significant. A is for it to change clinical practice. I have to admit that most of the articles that are published do not use the research methods for us to be certain that this is how clinical practice should be changed. But the second important, I think most papers should meet the threshold in how does this advance our knowledge of this aspect of kidney disease, whatever that aspect may be. And uh, whether it allows us to have clarified something that we didn't understand in terms of what the next clinical trial should be like. Now that this study is done, now we can design a clinical trial like this. To give you an example, so one of the things that we don't know uh, close to your heart about phosphorus (laughs) is what should be the target serum phosphorus in people on kidney disease. So what we need to do is to do a clinical trial in people that are randomized and then you achieve two different levels of serum phosphorus. There is one group in which you get between four and five, the other group we get between six and seven. But the question is, can we consistently achieve a serum phosphorus between four and five in people with kidney disease? There is a clinical trial that will appear soon in practice, which actually tested that hypothesis. Is it feasible to achieve a separation in serum phosphorus levels in people with kidney disease? And the answer to that is yes. Now that we've answered the question, we can use this information to plan the clinical trial that uses the methods that were used in this particular study or a similar approach to that in designing a trial that is adequately powered for the outcome of interest, whether it is fractures, whether it's cardiovascular disease, whether it's mortality. So we define significance more broadly when assessing papers, and that's the first thing we assess before we assess the internal or external validity. It may be a beautifully done paper that has no significance to the field, which then is not something that we'd be interested in in moving forward to publication. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to go back to the initial part of our conversation. You have made reference to some of the changes that you're making in CJSON. And I know that over the period of time that the publication has been present, the editors have each added their own stamp upon the journal. They've taken away some stuff. They've added some features. They've changed the cover page, you know, just lots of things. I mean, if you had absolutely no constraint on what you could do, how would you change the JSON? That's um, you're uh, opening a Pandora's box there because there are a lot of things that potentially could be changed. You know, uh, I, I think some of the things that we've changed are primarily to a standardize the reporting in the way stud- clinical research is reported, and b to present information in multiple ways. An example that I gave you was that of a visual abstract. 
there are constraints with regards to the quality of the images, for example, that we use the services of a medical illustrator. I can envision us using a medical illustrator. If resources were not a constraint, I would envision using a medical illustrator for a lot of the images, including in the original research articles, to embellish and for them to be in a standardized, visually appealing format. Uh, at this time, for original research articles, we depend upon the authors to provide the images. And as long as they meet the digital requirements, we accept them, but we don't embellish them for them to be presented uniformly in a high-quality manner. There are issues with regards to the website itself. I think the website can afford to be more user-friendly than it is. It's constrained by the platform we use, which, as with anything, it brings advantages and disadvantages. We would have a much bigger presence on social media than we have for that same reason. So the visual abstracts, for example, would be another thing. At this time, we have essentially got the ball rolling by saying that for every issue, we would have one research article that the editorial team would present a visual abstract. But in the future, we will depend upon the authors to submit the visual abstract I could envision every article to have a visual abstract that summarizes pictorially, so to say, the key message of that paper. So there are a whole host of things, all of which have to do with how we present the information to the wider nephrology community that I would hope to be able to change were the resources available. You know, one of the issues that comes along, and I, I would appreciate you providing some of the thoughts in how the council views it, is about the issue of a paper journal. Um, it is a decision for the ASN Council to take. We'll work hard to produce the best journal we can, whether it has a paper copy or not. How does the Council view the future with regards to publishing ASN journals in an electronic version only? I have to say that is one of the most common questions people ask me, to, like in the last few months, is the most common question that I've gotten, why do I still get a paper journal in the mail? Uh, you know, Raj, a lot of that is financial, you know, as you know. But there are still perhaps now a minority, but it's it's a fairly vocal minority of individuals who actually like having the journal in their hands. They're more comfortable perusing the journal if it's in paper form. We uh, saw when NEFSAP went to electronic only that there was this very vocal minority that said, I don't like it like that. And these were not all people who were 65 years old. I mean, these were, you know, also some of the younger individuals as well that would prefer to have a journal that they can put their hands on. But if we continue on this vein of exploding the model that we have now and figuring out a different way to present either new and exciting new research or supplemental material, value-added material, nice editorials and, and review articles. You know, I, I think about things like, you know, I have seen, for example, when I subscribe to one of those ACP products where I think it's called Journal View or something like that. Anyway, so they pluck out of the literature, you know, just different articles that are in the internal medicine literature that may be of interest to me, put the abstract up there, and then at the bottom there's a place for people to submit their take on it. I think that it's interesting to read those commentaries, and I was wondering if you thought that there would be any way to incorporate something like that 
as sort of a post-publication review. You know, having people send something in and say, this is a great article, it really helped me, et cetera, et cetera, versus these people looked at this population and it has no bearing on the people that I see. Um, and what you would think about trying to engage some interaction that way. Right. That's another thing that has come up periodically in terms of individuals asking us about this. And this is something that I have to admit that we've not necessarily settled on an approach. There are many ways of doing this. There is a conventional letter to the editor in which then we require the authors to respond that adds administrative burden uh, and sometimes it seems like people are sending letters just to get a publication without necessarily making a meaningful point. The second way we've considered doing this is, like you say, that you would have comment section on an electronic platform. With it, the challenges of the electronic platform that houses the journals. Um, the third way that we had a first such approach maybe a week ago or two weeks ago uh, was to engage with the ASN communities. One of the things that we have developed is called the Kidney Case Conference. Uh, a lot of what is under the umbrella of Kidney Case Conference is not new. We've just collected some things, some features that existed under that umbrella. Uh, and my take on what a Kidney Case Conference is, is an expert clinician demonstrating with the help of a case how they apply the current state of knowledge for that disease at the bedside. And so that could be a nephrology case and questionnaire. It could be attending rounds. So Mitch Rosner, uh, he authored one of the uh, kidney case conferences, and he was available to the uh, ASN communities for an hour on a Monday to answer questions pertaining to the case that he presented, which was to do with hypocalcemia. Um, and it got a lot of engagement. I have to say it was a small group of nephrologists that engaged with him electronically, but there were between 50, 60 questions kind of thrown at him. For this to be successful, I think, A, it needs to be a broader engagement of individuals that potentially could be posting questions through the communities, and uh, we would have to get in buy-in from the authors to be available to answer questions therein. So the most promising avenue that I see for us to broaden this is through the communities, and we want to be mindful of not asking too much of the communities but being available to serve the need you articulate and people being able to comment on work that is published in some of the ASN journals. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how you would view this approach of engaging with the communities. I think that uh, engaging in the communities, I, I think it's a valid way to go about it. You know, clearly the first year for the communities, you know, has been considered a success by all of the metrics that individuals that are savvy in this field measure. On the other hand, I think that you have pinpointed one very important aspect of the communities, and that is that it tends to be a relatively small group of individuals who become very engaged. And I don't get the sense that it's a huge, broad community of nephrology that's really buying into this idea and interacting on an ongoing basis. Uh, time will tell on this. It's still, I think, very, very early in the game. I do know that individuals do enjoy interacting with authors, especially if it's somebody who is fun, exciting, articulate, and is able on the fly to answer questions with some facility. And I'll have to say that most authors are like that, actually, and they enjoy talking about their work. 
So I think that the idea of the communities is great. I love the idea of the podcasts. I love that idea. I think speaking to the authors and have them give, you know, perhaps presenting the same information they presented in a slightly different way, um, discussing in more depth why this is significant. Um, in every single article, as you know, every author has to put in, you know, here are the limitations of this study, et cetera, et cetera. But to have, you know, somebody be able to discuss in some greater depth, this is the population that this applies to. I'm not really sure that we can translate this into this other population. So I think that uh, I, I really, really like both of those ideas tremendously. So we'll, we'll see how the podcasts. I, I would love to be able to know how many people have listened into a certain podcast for us then to plan this moving forward. We started off with one article for a podcast a month initially. We've expanded it to two. I can imagine that they could take off and maybe we would need to have a different take on which articles we select for a podcast. I can see that some articles in the message they have may be more amenable and attention-grabbing for individuals, for them to listen into a podcast compared to others. So I'd like to learn from our experience and refine our approach as we move forward, considering the workload we may, on the ASN staff, we may consider... <laughs> Having additional podcasts, more than two in a month, we'll see. Go ahead, Eleanor, you were saying something. I was just going to say, I think the other important piece of this is getting the word out. There is a podcast. There are two a month. You have to wonder how many people even realize that. And how do we put the word out there so that more people would engage in it and enjoy it? Uh, and not be the same people over and over and over again who were already, from a social media standpoint, very savvy and already knew how to do this. But I, I think that that is, and, I, and that's, that's been a challenge for ASN all along, is communication to the broader community about what we have to offer, what we're doing, such that people pick up and take advantage of what we can offer. So from a, from a, a clinical knowledge standpoint, is there any area of general nephrology that even in the relatively brief period of time that you've been an editor-in-chief where you feel like you have really picked up some knowledge? I mean, you know, it gets back to the question that you raised initially that there are areas of things we love and the areas of things we don't spend too much time thinking about on a day-to-day -day basis. For me, that's been glomerular diseases and transplantation. Uh, I could snidely say, who cares about them? But of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course I do. And those are the things that I have to say, particularly with regards to rare glomerular diseases, in which it is amazing to see how collaborative networks have been established and people are doing the difficult work of understanding the pathophysiology and or treatment of rare diseases uh, has been amazing. Similarly, with regards to transplantation, since the time of my fellowship, I've only taken care of people after the acute phase of getting a kidney transplant, and that, too, in partnership with a sophisticated transplant program. That is the second place that I have learned in terms of the advances and the work people are doing, and I'm gratified to learn that. That's kind of fun, isn't it? It is. Go back and, it, it and, is. and learn new stuff again. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with you. 
I think what you are actually pointing out is not just the fact that each of us has an area or a few areas where we tend to focus our attention and enhance our knowledge about it while we ignore others, but the fact that everything changes so quickly. And even though we talk about nephrology sometimes as if, gee whiz, it's kind of the same as it was 50 years ago, well, it isn't. <laughs> in fact, uh, you know, I started doing kidney transplant in 1981. And it was about three years ago that I decided I cannot keep up with the pace of change in transplant like I used to. So I, that should not be one of my primary areas anymore. I have other things that I need to do. But all areas of nephrology have actually moved forward quite a bit. And the pace of change is dramatic. I concur with you. It's easy to say that there has not been much progress, but in looking at the work people are doing and the effort they're putting in to solve some of the problems we face is actually very humbling. It is. It is. I agree with you 100%. So we are very proud to have you as the editor of Jason. I know it's a big responsibility, but I have no doubt that you're up to it and very much look forward to seeing the changes that come in the journal. Thank you. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drugs, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.